Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Are you thinking about getting into Dungeons and Dragons? Maybe you're looking to expand your horizons as a DM or a player. If that's the case, then it's time for you to check out the Dungeon Cast, the best D&D podcast out there that helps you passively learn all about the game just by listening. Join co-hosts Will and Brian as they break down the lore of a rich multiverse 50 years in the making in a lighthearted and beginner-friendly way. They cover everything from character creation options to tips for dungeon masters. There's something for everyone, no matter how long you've been playing TTRPGs. Find the Dungeon Cast anywhere you get podcasts or on YouTube. The Rust Cycle Tetralogy When it began, it seemed almost harmless. All I did was pose a question. And it was a simple question at that. One which I'd expected to elicit an equally simple answer. It was the type of question you only ask to fill dead space in a conversation. Something you mutter to seem cordial, to seem engaged even though your mind is elsewhere. But that seemingly simple question would result in the steady unraveling of my life. I was at a bar called The Beachcomber with Magnus, one of the only people I've cared to remain friends with in the years since I dropped out of college. We were nearing the threshold that separates casually buzzed from adequately drunk, each round disappearing almost as quickly as the bartender filled our glasses. Magnus was his usual self, growing more talkative with each drink. He was mumbling about a crackhead he'd seen on the bus, or something like that. I wasn't really listening. I was more focused on reaching that elusive state of euphoria that always lay at the bottom of the next drink always just out of reach. Was that the night we went to the Bruins game? I asked, hunched over the bar. I was peeling at the label on my beer when I noticed Magnus looking at me. He had a queer look in his eye, and his jaw was cocked at an awkward angle. Judging by his expression, you'd guessed I'd just asked him how his dead mother was doing. What are you talking about? He asked. We've never been to a Bruins game. I didn't know whether to be frightened or insulted. Magnus, it was last Tuesday, I said, swiveling in my stool to face him. Pasternak scored a hat trick. They were up by four when we left in the third period. Magnus looked at me, bemused, pulling sandy blonde locks out of his face. You're on one, man, he snickered. I watched a Tarkovsky movie on Tuesday. It was disturbing how authentic his expression was. Had he been fucking with me, I would have known. He had one of those faces, always easy to read. And what I was reading on him was astonishment. He really had no memory of going to that game with me. I could see it clear as day on his face. 
Hey, are you okay? he asked, a rare look of concern peeking through his stony features. I glanced at the mirror at the end of the bar. My reflection was pale, my features gaunt. Dark circles haunted my eyes. I think I'm going to call it a night, I muttered, tossing a few bills on the counter. I don't feel right. The silence in my house was unnerving. Aside from the occasional hum of my refrigerator's compressor, my cramped bungalow was void of all sound. But silence can speak to you. It can tell you things. You can learn things from a silent room that no words can convey. And what the silence of my surroundings was telling me just then was that I was alone. Remarkably alone. I was encased in my house like a corpse in a tomb, impenetrable to the outside world. I slid my laptop out from under my sofa and went online to check my bank statement. I wanted to see the transactions from Tuesday night so I could show Magnus that we'd bought beers at the stadium. But when I scrolled down to the records of the previous week, Tuesday was blank. It skipped from grocery shopping on Monday night to my check being deposited on Wednesday. There was a hollow space of inactivity, as if the whole day had never occurred. I slapped my laptop shut and took a bottle of bourbon to the bedroom. My phone buzzed a few times as I drifted off, but I left it unchecked on the nightstand. I just lay there, sipping occasionally and letting the silence consume me. When the harsh morning light cut through my room, I was already awake. The dull throbbing in my skull told me that I'd done more damage to the bourbon than I'd thought. Slowly, I made my way to the kitchen and boiled water for coffee. Late as I was, I wouldn't have time to drink my cup at home, so I searched through the cabinets for my insulated mug to take in the car. It wasn't in the neatly organized cabinet, among the other drinkware. So I popped open the dishwasher and looked in there. When I had searched the whole kitchen and still not found it, I poured the coffee in a ceramic mug and headed out the door. I took a detour on my way to work, hoping to bypass the construction on first. As I passed the cemetery, I held my breath. It was something I'd done ever since I was a child, though my original reasons for taking up the superstition were lost to memory. Something about not letting the ghosts invade your body when you inhale, perhaps. In the office, the air was still. I took in the familiar smell of the place. The nauseating scent of old leather and cheap cologne. I kept my head low and tried to dodge Bryce as I made my way to my desk. Thankfully, he didn't notice me. He was chatting it up with one of the girls in accounting going on about his recent trip to the Bahamas. Unlike my co-workers, my workstation was not adorned with pictures of loved ones or bonsai trees. There were no affirmations written in cursive or framed diplomas. The only things there to greet me were my ancient computer and a copy of Jeff Powder's book, Strange and Dangerous Dreams. As I lowered myself into my chair, something gnawed at me. I picked up Powder's book and flipped it open. I wanted to read a note I'd left in it a few weeks ago, a comment I'd scrawled about the discovery of the Northern Passage. My fingers flipped through the dog-eared pages, 
whipping each one past faster than the one before. I could hear my pulse thumping in my ear. From cover to cover, I scanned each page individually. But the words I'd written were gone. I'd stared at the book in awe, failing to understand how this was possible. It was as if pieces of me were being erased from history. With an agitated sigh, I tossed the book aside and booted up my computer. I wanted to disappear into my work, to give my brain the rare chance to focus on something productive. But my fingers just hovered listlessly above the keyboard, refusing to move. When my paralysis finally broke, it wasn't to work on a task I'd been assigned, but to pull up a Google tab and run a search for memory loss. I scanned a handful of medical blogs, unable to find any information that pertained to my situation, and I suppose that it was probably because what I was experiencing wasn't memory loss, but false memories, things I remembered vividly but had no record of occurring. It was a nearly indescribable experience. The sensation loomed just out of reach. On a strange whim, I drew my hands back to the keyboard and typed, I think I'm beginning to disappear. I didn't expect much in the way of results. I mostly just ran the search for the simple catharsis of writing the words down. But I found myself immediately drawn to one of the first results. It was a blog post about a bizarre book called The Rust Cycle Tetralogy. Information was sparse, but from what I could gather, the book documented a man's descent into a situation not unlike my own. On my way home from work, I stopped by Poor Tony's, the largest used bookstore in my area, and one of my favorite rainy day haunts. I could lose myself in there for hours, aimlessly combing the shelves in search of obscure titles. Some of the books were antiquated relics with faded covers and deep groves worn into the spines. Others had hardly been touched. It was the smell, though, that I loved most about the place a vague, piney scent that reminded me of my mother, curled up on our old love seat with a paperback and a cup of hot tea. I meandered over to the counter and asked the cashier if they had a copy of the Rust Cycle Tetralogy. The cashier, a bespectacled college student, gave a brief look of surprise when the computer showed that they had a copy in stock. She led me down a narrow aisle and used a stray stool to pick the book off the top shelf. It was gritty and stiff, the pages brittle and threatening to tear free from the binding. The cover was solid brown, with flakes of laminate peeling away. The title, written in generic mustard-yellow typeset, gave me the sense that the book was no less than a century old, though the blog I'd read claimed it had been written no more than twenty years ago. With the sun hanging low in the sky, I paid for the book, dropped it in my bag, and walked briskly back out to my car. Back at home, I heated leftovers and began to thumb through the pages. The author, a botanist named Bernard Muse, had set out to write the book as a study of the rust cycle in wheat plants, which is apparently a disease that occurs when puccinia spores spread through a wheat crop, causing the plant to break down. But as the book progresses... Muse shifts from documenting the degradation of plants to documenting the degradation of his reality. 
The manuscript was found amongst his things one day when he failed to return home after studying the fields. After coming into its possession, one of his peers had it published. I'm not entirely sure why this occurred. Perhaps he saw merit in Muse's work. Or perhaps he was more interested in the ostensible breakdown that preceded it. Either way, the book had made its way out into the world, and had eventually found itself in my hands. In the first section, Muse documents his arrival at a secluded farm in Utah, where he will be spending the winter alone, documenting the rust cycle in an affected crop. Despite the mental degradation he's soon to experience, he comes off as lucid and intelligent. His notes are thorough and his methods are rigorous. He goes into detail, explaining the painstaking work of studying each individual stalk of wheat to determine how quickly the spores are spreading through the crop. The first hint that something is amiss comes 20 pages in, when he laments the fact that some of his work has gone missing. A 12-page paper he'd written on epidemiology seemed to disappear in one day. A week later, he found that a journal he'd written on plant pathology and his records of wind patterns were gone as well. Despite his tireless efforts to organize and file his work, he is continuously forced to rewrite his findings. As the first section comes to a close, he wonders if he isn't the only one at the farm. When I finally put the book down, I was surprised to see that it was nearly two in the morning. I swept the bottle of bourbon off the counter and took a long pull, and then another, as I felt the warmth trickle down to my gut. In my bedroom, the familiar silence fell over me. An impenetrable barrier of soundlessness that separated me from the outside world. I descended into sleep, trying to anchor myself to my memories and experiences, trying to reach for those things that comprised my identity. But they were all just out of reach. They slipped through my fingers like grain, leaving only a hollow structure, which soon, too, was lost to the wind. It was only when I arrived at work that I realized I had no memory of waking up. Nor did I remember my commute. It was as if I'd made the journey while sleepwalking. I was surprised to find that I was dressed and relatively well put together, but was nonetheless troubled by the experience. As the day progressed, my amnesia lifted. I did lose a few short spans of time and would find myself in the bathroom or standing next to the water cooler with no recollection of how I got there. But for the most part, the day passed coherently, if not somewhat blurred. I wondered, at times, if I was losing my mind. I'd seen it happen to someone once. A roommate in college, who may have been a little odd but was basically competent and reliable, by college student standards at least, woke up one morning and told me that there had been people in his room the night before, poking him with long, sharp needles as he tried to sleep. At first, I thought he was messing with me, or perhaps that someone had played an elaborate and decidedly heinous prank on him in the night. But as the days went by and his strange behavior continued, it became clear that something had broken in him. His mind had been contorted somehow, leaving him with a fractured view of reality. The most disturbing part about the whole ordeal was how quickly it happened. 
One day, he was managing passing grades and going to parties with girls from the volleyball team. And the next, he was convinced that cloaked figures were experimenting on him in his sleep. When I arrived home from work, I was inexorably drawn back to the rust cycle. I thought perhaps I should give the book a break, that it wasn't helping my precarious mental state. But no matter what I tried to do, I would inevitably find myself back on the couch, with the old volume propped between my legs. Sometimes I was aware of myself as I hefted the book off the coffee table and pried it open, but still unable to stop myself, as if my autonomy had been compromised. Other times the transition would occur seamlessly. I would be in the kitchen or idly sketching at my drafting table, Then I would blink and find myself seated on the couch, staring adamantly at Muse's words. Eventually, I surrendered to the inherent power of the book and read on, continuing where I'd left off the previous night. In the second section, Muse's memories become scattered. He finds himself aimlessly walking the wheat fields with no memory of going out there. At one point, he comes to in a clearing unable to see any aspect of his farm in any direction. With darkness falling and a blizzard on the horizon, he walks aimlessly and eventually arrives back at the homestead. When he enters, however, he finds that minute aspects of the house and its contents have somehow changed. Diagrams of weather patterns he had written in black were now blue. The lunch he had prepared that morning sat on the table exactly as he had arranged it, despite the fact that he had already eaten it and disposed of the leftovers. The kitchen faucet, which had been silver before, was now a copper color. For a brief moment, Muse becomes convinced that he's accidentally arrived at the wrong house, having mistakenly wandered into a neighboring house instead of the one he'd been studying at. But no. His possessions, his work, it's all there, albeit slightly different than it had been before. The following morning, he resolves to call the university to inform them that he will be pausing his studies and returning home, but that he plans to return to his work promptly, as he's certain he'll need no more than a week or so of rest to get straightened out. He is dismayed, however, to learn that the university claims to have no record of anyone named Bernard Muse in their botany program and furthermore have not dispatched anyone to study wheat rust in southern Utah. It should be noted that this call would later be called into question by the peer who published the work, having verified that Muse indeed was an accredited member of the faculty and had received a grant to study wheat rust in Utah. Furious, and apparently quite stubborn, Muse decides to continue his work and have the matter straightened out when he returns to the university in the spring. After all, he notes, the winter proved to be a particularly severe one, and travel could be a difficult process in some areas. Besides, given his recent experiences, if he abandons his work, he has little confidence that it will still be there when he gets back. The rest of his day seems to pass with relative ease, and despite the litany of setbacks, he seems to have little trouble returning to his work, though his solace won't last. The night was quiet and still when it began, Muse writes. It started with a faint rapping on the door, 
and then suddenly it shifted to an adjacent wall. Then it seemed to be all around me, all at once. The visitor had arrived. Without reading another word, I threw the book halfway across the room. It lay splayed on the floor, beckoning me, but I retreated to my bedroom in revulsion, though I knew sleep wouldn't come easy. When I awoke, I half expected to be somewhere far from home, having traveled there in that liminal state that exists between sleep and wakefulness. But I was relieved to find myself cradled in the sanctity of my bed. I thought briefly about calling in sick to work, but I knew how the wretched silence would tear away at me if I stayed home. So, with a grunt, I heaved myself out of bed and went about my morning. As I brushed my teeth and washed my face, I realized that I was making an unconscious effort to avoid looking at my reflection in the bathroom mirror. All I could see was my blurry outline in the periphery. And as moments built without facing myself, I began to wonder what I would look like if I did. Would I come into focus? Or would my face remain a blur? Would I recognize the person I saw? Would I see anything at all? Pulling into the parking lot at work, I was confused to see only a handful of cars. Am I early for once? I wondered. I lugged my courier bag through the rain and stepped inside. My perplexity was compounded when I found the building empty. All the desks were vacant, and the space emanated the same eerie silence as my house. I lowered myself into my chair and waited for my co-workers to arrive. Minutes passed, or perhaps hours. But eventually, the security guard, Dale, came walking through the building. He was swinging his lanyard and whistling enthusiastically. "'I'll be,' he said." shaking his head gently. They've got you working on a Saturday. Saturday, I wondered. It couldn't be. Was yesterday Friday? I strained my mind to try and parse out the details of my week, but I could allocate nothing to any specific day. The whole thing was hazy and distorted. No, I said, smiling and picking up my copy of Strange and Dangerous Dreams. I just stopped by to grab something. I dropped the book in my bag and turned to leave, giving Dale a feeble wave as I did. When I pulled into the driveway, I shut my car off and reached for the lever to open the door, but something stopped me. Some strange inclination told me not to go into my house. Leave while you still can, a voice said from somewhere inside my head. I gazed out through the windshield and wondered what that meant. It seemed much less like a thought than something I'd heard someone say. You're being ridiculous, I said to myself before gathering my things and jogging inside. And I suppose I was being ridiculous. Because there was nothing inside that posed any threat to me. There was no intruder, nothing amiss. Even the silence, which had become both an integral part of my life and the source of much of my angst, had been temporarily replaced by the steady drone of the relentlessly falling rain. But then something caught my eye. Muse's book, which should have still been laying on the floor where I'd thrown it. It had been placed on the coffee table, laying open on the page I'd left off on. I tried to ignore it, but once I had seen it, I couldn't stop myself. As if it were happening beyond my control, 
my eyes began to trace the lines of text. By the time I realized I was reading, it was already too late. As the third section begins, Muse thinks there's someone knocking on the door, then two people simultaneously knocking on separate walls of the house, then what must be a group of people knocking on all the walls that surround him. But no, he thinks, that can't be. He convinces himself that it's wind throwing debris against the walls of the small wooden house, or perhaps a sudden hailstorm, but decides to go out and check anyway. Before opening the door, he pulls a small revolver out of his cigar box and loads it. With the gun tucked securely in his waistband, he pushes the door open. The night is dark and still, the air frigid. He can see his breath, but not much else. As his eyes adjust to the darkness, he is able to make out a few inches of fresh snow, laying undisturbed on the grounds of the farm. As he ventures further and further from the house, he begins to notice fresh footprints in the snow, forming an almost perfect circle around the homestead, but never coming any nearer than ten feet from the residence. How then had they knocked, he wondered. An intense chill gripping him, he begins to call out, all while hoping that the panicked stutter in his voice isn't apparent. This is private property, he warns the intruder. I'm armed. But there's no reply. Standing at the edge of the wheat field, he hoists his lantern up high, casting a wide arc of light over the crop. And then he sees it, or at least thinks he sees something. A few dozen paces out into the field, a looming shape totters on long, spindly legs. It appears to be carrying something that looks like a scythe, the long, curved blade glimmering in the light of the lantern. He blinks, hoping the apparition will disappear. But it remains. What are you doing here? he shouts, hoping to rouse a response. But the figure appears undisturbed by the question. Soon, more snow begins to fall, obscuring his view of the trespasser. And between the flurries, seeing nothing but the dark, sprawling field, he grows uncertain that anyone had ever been there at all. And with his revolver in hand, he slowly retreats back to the house. Suddenly, I was snapped out of the story by the sound of my doorbell. I set the book down and walked silently to the door. With anxious nerves, I pressed my face against the peephole, peering out at the gray, alien world. There on my porch stood a short, calmly woman, holding some sort of small package. A vague smile hung around the corners of her lips, and something about the sight of her disturbed me. I threw the bolt and cracked the door open, revealing only a narrow strip of my face in the opening. Hi there, I'm Marcy, the woman said her voice a nasally whine. I live next door. She handed me the package, which I received hesitantly. I just figured what better way to welcome you to the neighborhood than to bake you some brownies. Welcome me to the neighborhood, I thought. She must be mistaken. I'd lived there since... Since when? How long had it been? I couldn't remember. Thank you, I muttered. That's very kind but I hate to admit I'm terribly busy at the moment. Of course, 
the woman that called herself Marcy said, but I had already shut the door. I pressed my face against the door and watched her walk down the driveway. After a few paces, she stopped and turned back towards the house, her face bearing a confused expression. She seemed to consider the property for a second, perhaps recounting the odd exchange we'd shared. And then she shrugged subtly and went on her way. As I crept back into the interior of my house, into the tender incubation of silence, I pulled my phone out of my pocket. I wanted to call my mother and ask her when I'd moved into that house. But as I scrolled through my contact list, I realized her name wasn't in there. Neither was my father's, for that matter. And then the true terror of the situation began to seep into my psyche. I don't even know their names, I realized, stunned. I don't know my parents' names. Even if they were among the names on the list I scrolled through, I wouldn't know it if I saw them. I grasped at memories of my childhood, trying to grab hold of something that could help me recall my family. But the thoughts in my head were all too vague. Nothing from my past stood out as being particularly real or tangible. It was all just an imperceptible blur. I pressed my back against the living room wall and slowly slid down it until I rested on the floor, a crumpled mess of tears and agony. When Monday came, I was unable to go to work. I couldn't retain enough of myself to perform my job. I pictured myself showing up and sitting at my desk, staring at my computer blankly. No, I couldn't do it. My only option was to retreat further into myself hoping to find something in there that would allow me to re-emerge with some remnants of the person I used to be. But despite my efforts, no such reckoning would occur. The high school I attended, the university I studied at, the menial jobs I had in my young life, they were all gone, mutated into something ethereal that seemed no more real than a TV show. Even Magnus, the man that had been the cornerstone of my personal life not two months before, became little more than a wraith. I tried to contact him, hoping to piece together some of the details of my life, but he never picked up the phone. For the first few days, my calls went straight to voicemail, and then I started to get an automated message saying the line had been disconnected. In the time that followed, the last vestige of continuity disappeared from my life. I would leave my house one person and return an entirely different person. My identity, which used to seem impervious to the perils of life, began to feel so pliable a simple trip to the supermarket could scrape me clean and leave me with an alien presence inside my body, an imposter walking around in my skin. I looked the same as I had ten minutes before, or even ten weeks before, but on the inside I felt as though nothing remained of the old me. Late one night... Or perhaps it was very early in the morning. I woke with a rigid burn of anxiety. It clenched my chest, making each breath sting, like the inside of my ribcage had been lined with thorns. Hoping to stave off the coming panic, I rose and went for a walk. The neighborhood was quiet, a thin fog distorting the glow of the streetlights. Lawns glimmered with morning dew, and the houses they surrounded sat dormant. 
I wondered what kinds of disintegration those houses hid. Were there people in those houses, perhaps sleeping or perhaps laying awake in the darkness, who were witnessing the perpetual collapse of their lives like I was? Did they fight the encroaching chaos, its hungry jaws reaching in to steal their lives bite by bite? Or did they surrender to it, witnessing their own demise as if no more than a powerless, frightened bystander? When I arrived back home, an odd inclination slipped into my head. It may have been futile, but I thought perhaps that if I finished reading the rust cycle, I would find something resembling an answer. And so, under the faint glow of the morning sun, I drew the book into my lap. When he arrives back at the homestead after seeing the figure in the field, Muse plans on heading to bed. He tells himself that the visitor had been nothing more than a mere apparition, and attributes the whole episode to a lack of sleep. But on his way to bed, something catches his eye. It's a note, handwritten on old stationery, sitting on the desk where he works. Muse doesn't reveal to the reader what the note says, but its impact on him is palpable. In the days that follow, Muse attempts to finish his work at the farm so he can get back to the university and publish his findings, but his efforts are fruitless. He stares at the work he's done, studies on wheat pathology and weather patterns, notes about the crop and its infection, and it begins to lose meaning. Eventually, he becomes convinced that the work has been done not by him, but by someone else bearing his name and handwriting a strange familiar with unknown intentions. The work itself, though, is of little consequence to Muse at this point. Instead, he becomes obsessed with the note he found on his desk. Having read it, he concedes that it's only a matter of time until the disintegration that's taken his mind claims his body as well. Soon I'll fall to dust, he tells the reader. I'll be swept away by the wind like so many mold spores. In fact, I can feel it happening already. I think I'm beginning to disappear. In the fourth and final section of Muse's Tetralogy, I saw clearly the architecture of my demise. It was something eternal, set in place long before I was ever brought into this world. A nefarious fate that could not be reversed by any human power let alone my own. But like Muse's note, it's something I cannot share with you. For to allow your eyes to glance upon those words would infect you with this curse as well. And like me, your destiny would be erased. You would collapse where you stand, with the many details of your life crumbling into quiescence. And to those who knew you, you'd become little more than a memory that fades each time it's accessed until finally the last remnants of your essence are lost to this world. And then, with a loud clap, the book fell to the ground. It may have been because I dropped it, or it may have been because I was no longer there to hold it. But the last words of my story had been written. There was only silence now. And what I felt was something like relief, as the great soundless void welcomed me in its embrace.
Hey, Jeff here. Uh, if you enjoy my podcast, I just want to let you know that I have a Patreon that you can subscribe to. It's $3 per episode, and you get to listen to every episode a few days early. Plus, you also get access to my full-length audiobook, Solace. It's sort of a cosmic horror slash mystery story where this journalist uncovers uh, unexplainable disappearance and sort of becomes obsessed with it. You can listen to the first 30 minutes for free in the episode titled Solace. The Patreon also has its own RSS feed, so you can listen on whatever podcasting app you like. And the link for it is in the show notes, as well as in the bio for the show. But if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. You can also leave a rating or write a review. That goes a long way for helping the show get listeners. You can follow me on social media. The links for Instagram and Twitter will be in the show notes as well. And of course, just thank you for being here. It really uh, seriously means a lot that you listen to this. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.